Hi everyone and welcome back to the Paramo podcast. I am James Prescott, your host. Welcome to the show. Really great to have you all here again. And uh, yeah, this week I have a returning guest. I, I actually can't remember how many times they've been on the show now. Must be about four times, I think. I think uh, so, maybe, maybe a bit more, I don't know. Yeah, because you, um, you've been on a couple of times with Barry, I yeah. think, mm-hmm. and once on your own. So yeah, about four ti- four or five times. But it's uh, Maria Francesca French. Welcome back. Thank you. It's so good to be back, James. It's always really good to be back on your podcast because you're a friend and a colleague and we have such a great rapport. So I love having a conversation with you about this stuff. Yeah, um, I couldn't agree more with that. Um, conversations with you are always fascinating and I always learn something. So oh. um, yes, very much so. And the reason we're talking today is because Maria has a second book out. It's a, it's a second book inside five months, which is tremendously impressive. Um, um, and I've you know got to read both of them, and they're both really amazing. Um, Maria talked about her first book on the podcast earlier this year, and now we're here to talk about her second book. So tell us about this this new book. Yeah, absolutely. Well, just really quickly. So the first book I did back in January, it was called Safer Than the Known Way, A Post-Christian Journey. And it was really like a 30,000 foot look at post-Christian perspective when it comes to faith, God, church, life, meaning making, all of this stuff. It was um, a little autobiographical, also introducing lots of new theological and philosophical concepts. And it was really kind of an umbrella book on what it might look like to move on in faith after the big G God in the sky has sort of run out of steam. And then the question I usually get, not even so much after that book, but after conversations about you know what I've just mentioned, because I've been talking about this stuff for years now is, okay, well, what does this look like in real life? Like, how does this filter out and filter through into various categories of our life, how we interact on the daily in relationships and community with ourselves in faith, all of this stuff. And those are all, always really good questions. And so what I knew I always wanted to do was have a follow-up to that book and talk about all, um, all varieties of life, God, faith, um, scripture, high holy holidays, love, death, happiness, anything that makes us human, um, anything that's a part of life, I wanted to talk about from a post-Christian perspective because it's really, I don't want to say easy, but it's easy enough to talk about this stuff from a theological and philosophical perspective. But what does it look like when we get down and dirty in our lives with it? And what does it look like to have a new imagination for some of this stuff past the big God in the skies involvement past the leading and the nudging of the interventionist God that, you know, people who are reading this kind of work no longer aspire to or believe in. And so that's what this book is all about. It's um, 40 chapters, 41 if you count the epilogue, because that's a short essay in and of itself on what I said, all various topics of life, faith, God, and otherwise. So it's not exhaustive and it's not conclusive, but the whole idea of this book, as people will find, as um, I wrote in the introduction, it's about thinking new thoughts together and having new conversations together around a lot of this. So that's that's what this new book is. Yeah. And what's it called? The title is Reconfiguring a Collection of Post-Christian Thoughts and Theologies. Yeah, uh, and it's a it's a collection of essays, basically, isn't it? it in, is. And they're in chronological order from when you when you've written them, right? That's the yeah, 
Yeah, they are. So basically, this all the essays flow out of my Patreon, which I started in December of 2020. And so I have well over a hundred now. Um, and I've, I have a lot of different Patreon tiers, but, uh, one of them is receiving new content from me every single week, both written and audio. Now, because my life is busy, there's been times where I've missed a week or two, but for the most part, the better half of two and a half years, I've been creating content, uh, for people who are looking to, you know, engage post-Christian perspective and post-Christian thought um, on a really practical level. No, no theological background needed, no philosophical education needed. I'm not only giving you my thought, but I'm engaging artists and theologians and thinkers and icons and songwriters. So I'm trying to be really integrated, or I have tried to be really integrated in what I've offered people. And so what I've done is taken the best 40, 41 out of those over a hundred essays. And I have, um, collected them together in, in this volume really as a gift and a labor of love to people who read safer than the known way and loved it. Um, but this can also be read as a standalone piece as well. Mm. So, mm. Yeah. and they're all, the, the pieces are all on very different subjects, but they're also very, connected yeah. as well. Um, like for today, I just we just kind of decided that I would we would pick a couple out and focus on them in particular. Um, yeah, because there's so much we could talk about, and there's 21 <laughs> different. You know, if we, if we went through all of them, it would take it would take it would take about 20 podcasts or something. Yeah, we could probably um, do 40 hours on all 40, probably. So, um, yeah, I mean, like you could do a whole year of podcasts on them. So <laughs> I, I went through them and read them, and then I picked a couple out. And uh, so the first one that I wanted to look at was it's actually the first one. Mm. And it's called uh, Nostalgia Feeds Us Garden Dreams When the Future is in the City. Yeah. So tell us a bit about this one. Yeah. So I would say that nostalgia is the biggest challenge to the work that I do in this post-Christian, post-God conversation and arena. I think when things get really tough for people, um, when cracks start to appear in their identity because their faith is migrating and transforming and evolving and transitioning. There is such a temptation and such a pull to want to go back to sort of the glory days of when our Christianity was good and when it all made sense and when God in the sky was good and, you know, communicating and alive and there for us and, and all of this. And, you know, we we, when we look back, everything sort of lives in a golden haze. And this is, isn't only religion. This is so many things in our life, oh, right? Yeah. Sometimes Absolutely. we can have a really troubled relationship with a parent, but after they've passed on, we look back and we only see the good thing, which is great. But this is, this is what nostalgia does. It sort of squelches any of the bad memories that we had and sort of brings all the good stuff to the top. And I think over the last few years, certainly you know, with the dawn of the pandemic in 2020 and the deconstruction conversation really coming to the fore, you know, a few years out from that now, I started to sort of sit back and sort of see what the trends were and how people were moving in this conversation. And, you know, there was a, a lot of talk of people wanting to go back to certain paradigms, or maybe they didn't want to go back and maybe they didn't go back, but I would hear things like, oh, I really, I really miss my relationship with God, or I really miss, you know, the God I thought existed in the sky who looked after me. And I, I totally get that. And, 
you know, I have a lot of empathy and sympathy for that. And these are all things that we have to navigate as we move out of certain constructs of Christianity. And it's just going to take time and, and that's okay. But I think I wanted to have a very real conversation on what, what nostalgia does for us and how trauma, how our brain processes trauma. And oftentimes, you know, it will mask it with the good memories at the same time that also happened. Um, and as humans, we want to be so binary. We want to say it was all good or it was all bad. And we're not really good at trying to hold the tension that ah, actually some of it was really good and some of it was really bad. And it's okay that it's both. And the idea behind the title of Nostalgia Feeds Us Garden Dreams When the Future is in the City, you know, the metaphor, of course, of the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve, you know, being banned from that. And, you know, we can see all of the, you know, Hebrew Testament, people wanting to get back to that perfect union, not only with the union they had with God, but the union they had among themselves within community, within humanity. And ultimately, the debacle of the garden was a, a disintegrating of community as well, not only their relationship with their God. And everyone believes that the garden is sort of the, the ultimate arrival. Um, but when we look back and we only look back to the past and we only see the good about the garden, because there was so much awful about the garden too, <laughs> but we only see the good about it, we miss the promise, um, which is the future is in the city. And if you look through scripture from Genesis to Revelation, you will see the promise of the new city of God in the book of Revelation and John's vision about how you have the tree of life on either side you know, of the river that flows into the new Jerusalem and the new city. And by focusing on the past, which nostalgia makes us do, um, we completely miss the promise of the future. And the future is in the city, not in the garden. So it's not so much um, uh, a diss on gardens, <laughs> but um, just sort of a, a metaphor for talking about, you know, the, the, the dangers of nostalgia. And that doesn't mean that we can't hold some of our memories dear and think about the good times and even engage in nostalgia because who doesn't love to feel nostalgic about things? It's this warm, fuzzy feeling. But the important thing is that we know what we're doing as we we do so. That's right. Yeah, this is this was such a fascinating thing for me. It's such because it's nostalgia's been such so prevalent in our yeah in our national conversation, both of our oh, countries, absolutely. Right, in the last, absolutely, you know, seven or eight years, right? It's been you know um, Brexit. Brexit is all Brexit is all about nostalgia. It's all about Hundred like, you know, percent. Somehow we were this great imperial power, and we didn't need anybody else, and we don't want to be controlled by anybody else. And you know, and uh, we can suddenly go back to being like the British Empire and being, you know, we don't need anybody else to help us. And this kind of egotistical thing that you know partly came through winning the war as well, and it was yeah. probably the same in your country as well. Like absolutely, um, that it was like we don't need anybody else. We're better than everybody else. We're right. We're more. We have the moral high ground. We don't need. Like and this kind of national ego, like and just this harking for some, you know, golden days that never really were. Like, um, and uh, that's what they always used to talk about: these kind of golden uplands, you know, like yeah. which were never really real, you know. And it was, um, and problem is people can be suckers for that because when things are difficult, they want to remember how things used to be. Right, yeah. they want to. Yeah. Um, they want to. Yeah, and and it's and the same happened in America with Donald Trump. I mean, his 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 whole campaign was make America great again. That's yeah. been 
let's go back to the past and make things how they used to be because everything was perfect in the past when it wasn't. Yeah. And, yeah. But people want to want to think it is because it's easier, right? It's, it's easier. easier. Than, and this is just going to touch on the on the next essay, which we'll get to in a few minutes. But um, but this is again something that I cover on this podcast a lot, which is you know when we don't process our grief and our trauma and the realities of what happened as as and we don't do it as a as a as a you know, as a national consciousness and we don't acknowledge what we've done and the bad things we've done in the past and the, the suffering of the past then we can pretend or forget it happened like there's things that this my country has done which we should not be proud of and that like people want to try and pretend that didn't happen um like the younger generation have the benefit of having the internet so they can even if they're not educated to know this stuff, they can find it out really easily. So they know. Yeah. You can't hide from it anymore now, um, yeah. which is a benefit of the internet because you can't hide from the past anymore. Um, <laughs> everything is some, everything is written down somewhere. So um, that, gives, that gives me hope for the future. But, like, but, yeah, I mean, nostalgia can – if we start living in nostalgia, then we're avoiding dealing with our, with our grief and our trauma and we're avoiding dealing with – the consequences of our actions and what and things yeah. that we've done that maybe we regret and that exactly. can be individually or collectively exactly and sometimes if we're not careful we can actually you know um make an idol of the past yeah. and then fall prey to idolatry and i think that's what has happened even in the god conversation in the christian conversation we have crystallized what a particular experience of god has been like and we continue to try and attain that and touch that and, you know, revive it and experience it again. Um, and it's just not possible. And it doesn't mean that we can't look back on the past and be grateful for that and all that it taught us. It just means let's move forward and let's be inspired to move forward because the future is completely open. Yeah. So I, I yeah, I, I always want to caution people with nostalgia because I think it's it's a great enemy when we don't name it. When we name it and invite it in, that's fine. Then we know what we're dealing with, but it it can really creep up and you know, it can manipulate our our memories and thoughts and that can be really tough to deal with if you if you don't know that that's what's happening. That's right. You know, I mean even even healing from trauma. You know, it's always complicated. I mean, I know I know from I know what it's like to lose a parent and Fortunately, my relationship with my mother was pretty good, but you know, part of me processing my grief was acknowledging that she wasn't perfect yeah. either, and that she made mistakes, and that sure. she hurt me, you know, on occasion. Like she was a good mother, but she was human, right? Sure. She was, um, and that, and that's always a difficult thing to do when you're grieving because you don't want to remember those things. You want to remember all the good things, and that's that's understandable. And I think. But I think it's easy to just focus on those things once you've acknowledged that there were imperfections and mistakes and things that you had to resolve and things that you needed to that you never got to resolve with them. And yeah. um and when you when you spend time working through those things and processing those things as I have in therapy, it allows you to move past them in a healthy way because you're not pretending like they never happened. You're acknowledging they happened, but um, you can still remember the good things. And Absolutely. that actually makes the joy, I guess, deeper, like when you remember the good things, because you've acknowledged that they weren't perfect and that they made mistakes and maybe they hurt you, but you can, you've done the work of healing and forgiveness and you've, 
you know, you've moved on. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think one thing I haven't done in my my post-Christian journey, um, and I'm careful not to call it like my deconstruction journey because my faith transitioned years before the word deconstruction was being used to denote this, you know, Same. pop culture yeah. movement. And and that's totally fine, but I, that's why I don't use it to sort of describe. And, and also deconstruction belongs to, you know, a philosophical idea of Jacques Derrida and Jacques Pudo and Mark Taylor. And I really unpack those concepts in my first book, because I think deconstruction itself is such a powerful thing, um, that I wanted to really put out there for people. Um, you know, an authentic look at, at what deconstruction is. Anyway, all that to say, you know, I look back on my Christian Christian days, you know, whether it was my Catholic upbringing or my evangelical um, context as a teenager, or even, you know, in my, you know, late teens and early 20s, I was very charismatic and in a Pentecostal denomination. And yeah, there were things that I missed out on. And there were things that I look back now that I didn't love and that I would go back and change if I could. But there was also a lot of really good stuff that came out of that for me. Yeah. And, you know, I think I hear a lot of all the bad, only the bad stuff coming out, right? And that's like the other side of this um, nostalgic piece is sometimes, you know, you only remember the bad because you've moved on from it. So it has to be the enemy. But just because we've moved on from something doesn't mean it wasn't good. You know, I hear this, I hear this kind of rhetoric a lot in romantic relationships, like granted, you know, as long as people aren't breaking up because it was an abusive situation or something like that. But if you, if your relationship just didn't work out, you had a lot of love and you, it ran its course. And then you decided that you were going to end things. You know, people tend to say, oh, like that person wasn't good for you. And, you know, that relationship, we're so glad it's over and bigger and better things ahead. And it's like, no, I'm really, I want to honor that time in my life. Like I loved that person. There was a lot of good that came out of it. It just wasn't meant to go forever. It was meant to go for that time. And it served them. It served me. It was a beautiful time. There was a lot of love, a lot of like memory and shared life. And it's, you know, we, we don't have to demonize something just because we've moved on from it. And it's the same thing with religion and Christianity and, you know, faith in, in general. We don't have to hate it all just because yeah. we need to move on from it now. <laughs> Do you yeah, know what I mean? And, you know, I have a lot of friends who are still part of Christian communities and um, that's, and that's still very much part of their, their life um, in a healthy way yeah. as well. And, you know, I support them and I cheer them on and, and I've learned from them as well. It's actually helped me heal mm. over my own kind of religious trauma because seeing people in healthy Christian community and growing in, in that and seeing that that's possible is actually really encouraging. You know, it kind of gives me a bit of hope and it gives me a bit of comfort, you know, that um, because, you know, that was, that, that, that even though I'm not, I wouldn't call myself, I wouldn't use that label for myself anymore. Mm. There's elements of that which still mean a lot to me. And yeah. that was part of my journey. It helped shape my values. It helped shape my perspective on the world. And it was helpful to me for a long time. So, yeah, yeah um, because you're right, it's easy to just kind of go into this binary, like I've moved on from it, so therefore I'm going to demonize it completely yeah. and everything about it. Um rather than just say that was a season of my life and that and I just naturally grew out of it. And well, exactly. And other people have different journeys than me and their journeys are equally valid. 
Yeah, and I think that's why the language of post-Christian and post-Christianity is so important to me, and I, I'm, I've used it so much in my work, because post-Christian is very different than atheism or even agnosticism in the sense that I'm past Christianity, but I'm still engaging it. I'm past the big God in the sky, but I'm still engaging little G God and what that looks like and what that might mean. And this sounds really curious, and if people are interested, you can read my first book, but that is why... I really hold to that language and why it's so important for me to use that language in these conversations. Because we're not just post-religion, right? We're not post-Buddhism or post-Judaism or post-Islam. you know, Islam. Those aren't our faith stories. Those aren't our faith traditions. We're, we're post-Christians because we used to be a certain you know, type of Christian in a traditional sense, and now we're not. But we're not done with Christianity, and it's not quite done with us. If people are done with it altogether, and I have these conversations with people all the time, you know, no longer compelled by, you know, the New Testament imperatives, you know, that we see in the Gospels, no longer compelled by Jesus and his story, you know, no, no longer compelled by, you know, the, the history of Christianity and the narrative of the Judeo-Christian God. They just want out. They want done. And I go, okay, <laughs> um, you are definitely out and done. And atheism feels like a good a good category for you if this is kind of where you're at. But most people who are leaving organized religion and traditional confines of Christianity and faith and church and doctrine and ideology and all of these things still want to engage it in some way. And it's mostly because it holds their story so deeply that they grew up in it or their identity is really wrapped up in it or there's still so much about it all that compels them. They just want it to play out differently. And so, you know, that's why the the post-Christian piece, I think, is so important. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. I agree. And yeah. Um, yeah, I love how that conversation evolved. That was really, that was really good. <laughs> um, and that kind of brings us kind of naturally, I think, to the second um the second thing I read, um, which people who listen to me my, my podcast a lot and know me will not be surprised at uh, that I chose, um, um, and it's the tw- it's the twentieth essay, uh, mm. and it's called um, "What to Say About Meaning in the Face of Death." Mm. So, tell us a bit about this one. Yeah, so it was inspired. By let's see, um, I have the book pulled up. I I put it out in November of 2021, so it's a few years now. And you'll find with the book, the first essay came out January 2021, and the last one is as recent as spring of 2023. So just in the last few months, I think. <laughs> um, but yeah, this one I wrote when I had a friend pass away at just barely scratching the surface of 40, was still 39, just shy of 40. And um, him and his wife were good friends in college. I was really, really good friends with his wife and sort of friends with him. Um, College was 20 years ago. So, um, you know, you lose touch, but you still, well, not 20 years ago, almost 20 years ago, um, you lose touch, but you kind of stay in touch through social media and you see what's happening. And, um, you know, I went to a a charismatic evangelical Bible college. So most people that graduated from there went on to do traditional Christian vocation ministry. And they certainly did. And they were married with three young girls and they um, were doing a a church plant in the Midwest. I want to say Wisconsin. Anyway, me and my friends figured out that um, 
he had gone to bed and then didn't wake up the next morning. And we were so utterly shocked on so many levels because he was so beloved and the sweetest, most tender guy, total girl dad, loved his wife, our really good friend, our really good girlfriend. And the awful thing about the situation is that our girlfriend battled cancer for years before this and beat it. And she had been, I don't know, not not long in complete remission and living a really great life with her family. And then this happened. And you just have to, why? You know, like there was, there was no rhyme or reason. He was not sick. He did not have um, anything wrong in his body. He just went to bed and didn't wake up. And, you know, there's so many thoughts that go through your head, you know, like what was their final good night? Like, was it a normal, like, was it a normal good night kiss? Like, was there any premonition, you know, cause you just, you never think that your partner's not going to wake up in the morning. You know, you just, yeah, there were all these thoughts that went through my head. And I just thought to myself, these are the kind of things that people are going to have a lot of questions about and not know maybe how to engage well from a post-Christian conversation. Because in most traditional realms of Christianity, we're promised heaven or hell. <laughs> um, for my my friend, the case would have certainly been been heaven. And there's all this meaning and hope we find in believing that we're going to see a loved one in the next life, or if we have very strict afterlife constructs and we know who's in and who's out and what gets us to the place we want to go to. And so much of our life is lived for that sense of eternity in those you know traditional bounds of, of thinking and faith. And I just thought, what does it look like to grieve and to lose someone you love when you are beyond all of that and you no longer hold fast and true? Because I would say the post-Christian conversation isn't about saying like there is no afterlife and, you know, when you're dead, you're just dust and that's it. But it's about saying, you know what, it's not what we thought it was. And we're just actually not sure what it is. And because we're not sure, and we still want to engage scripture on this stuff, and scripture seems very wisely silent and prudent <laughs> when it comes to talking about afterlife constructs, we see it we see it rise to the service uh, narratively um, in various social contexts, you know, Jewish, Greek, um, you know, uh, Roman, uh, just so many, so many different ways of engaging afterlife. And the point is never the location, right? The point is always what gets you to one or the other and, you know, how you want to live in life. And so I wanted to have a conversation about what kind of, what does it look like to transcend those polarities of nihilism? You know, everything's meaningless and, this life means nothing because there's nothing next. And the other polarity of heaven's waiting for us. Jesus is on a big throne. St. Peter's at the gate and streets of gold. Like, okay, what does the next piece of this conversation look like? And so I talked a little bit about Jacques Lacan and, you know, his theory of, of lack. He's done a lot with obviously a famous scholar of, of Freud and Jung's work. And he kind of took it to the next step, you know, talking about the lack we feel in life and how all of our desire is from this lack. Um, 
but the desire will never catch the lack. Essentially, you know, the lack will always be there and we're yeah. just kind of caught in this abyss of emptiness. And then someone, you know, another French philosopher, Gilles Deleuze comes along and says, okay, sure, there may be meaninglessness out there. There may be no next life after this one, but how we make meaning and why this life matters is because we make it together. We get deep down in the roots of our community, of our relationship, of ourselves, and we find meaning and we make meaning together in relationality, in mutuality, in, in oneness, in community, in relationship, in all of these things and how we do life together. And so whether life has meaning or not, whether there's a next life after this one, none of that is the point or the focus. But the what matters is, is that we're actually doing life together and we're making meaning for us where it counts. Yeah. Yeah. I, I thought I was thinking about all of this when I was reading it and you know, it's a lot. That was just for our listeners. That was like a really big overview, but it's a big essay. So it is. Yeah, it is. it's really good. <laughs> I'd recommend this one. Definitely. Uh, you know, in the last six months, you know, without giving too much away, out of respect for my family, but mm. um, I've had two close family members who've very nearly, I've lost them, very, very close to losing them, and another extended family member who, who did pass away and who was the same age as me. And so this has been on my mind a lot and uh you know like just i think especially i think especially when it was my dad yeah it was a kind of first it was kind of like you realize that oh they they are mortal mm. you know um and i probably haven't got that long mm. um and i know that ever since since that happened i've been more more intentional than ever about spending time with him and while I'm with him making the absolute most of every minute and yeah and yeah. it's actually deepened our relationship I think I feel closer wow. to him now than wow. ever mm. um we've had some really tender moments and really powerful moments together um and yeah and because you because you never know, do you? You never know when the last day is going to be. And yeah. um, my my spiritual journey has progressed to the point where I have a I have a conception of consciousness continuing after physical death. Sure. Um, and some experience of that, uh, some kind of transcendent experiences of that, which you know, which kind of were enough to prove it for me anyway. Yeah. And kind yeah. of theories of quantum entanglement and how that works and you know the science of that all that so that's and i've talked about it on this show a few times yeah. um so i do have a sense of, of our consciousness continuing after death and I, when my mm. when my extended family member passed away i was very aware of that and it was the mm. first time since i come to that perspective that i'd lost someone and it was you know it was a different experience you know um I was, yeah, I was able to kind of grieve in a healthy way, and but also, yeah, it was it was very surreal because it wasn't like the whole kind of oh, don't worry, he's gone to heaven kind of thing. Yeah, um, yeah. it was sure. It was it was just more of a way of like. I think my perspective on death is that it is it is a stage of life rather than Indeed. rather than the end of life, you know um there's a there's a show that i used to watch which many people will laugh when i say at dawson dawson's creek 
um, there's a when Dawson's father dies, um, he says, um, "Life is not the opposite of death. Birth mm. is the opposite of death. Life doesn't have an opposite." Mm, that continues. is so good. And I'm like, and you know, and that, that, I love that show. <laughs> um, but that was, I remember it from back in the day. Yeah, sure. exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and but that's so true. You know, it's it, it, life continues, and I'm very confident of that and it's not it's not really based on any kind of religious belief at all or it's based on my own experiences and stuff I've read about quantum entanglement and things and just you know obviously you can't prove it but my experiences give me confidence of it um absolutely you know and then that's that's my journey other people have a completely different experience and that is totally fine yeah um but it is really interesting yeah, how we how we experience how death can actually make you, you cherish life more yeah um and be more yeah. fully present in the moment actually when you said the thing about everything is meaningless i actually thought of that there's a i know there's a there's something in the new testament about where he says meaningless everything is meaningless we're just vapor mm. um i can't remember where it's from because i don't know the bible like that well but and i remember rob bell did actually a talk called introduction to joy which was kind of based around this this whole this line this whole premise yeah. like you know you never know how long you've got so find the joy in everything yeah go with a bar for joy you know yeah. um because you know our days our days on earth are kind of a number you know and so um even if our consciousness continues after death it's not the same kind of life sure yeah it's not life yeah exactly and, exactly and, you know um so even if, I mean, that, that, that raised the whole question with me of, so if my consciousness survives after my body died, does that mean I have to grieve the death of my own body? Mm, interesting. Like, <laughs> you know, that would be, that's a whole interesting concept that I'm, that I've been thinking about. And, but, but yeah, I mean, this is a really, really good, really good piece. And it's, it's like something that we, like I say all the time on this show that we need to reflect on a lot, you know, death and yeah. grief and, you know what life means and you know if it means anything and making the most of every day yeah yeah it's interesting because you know with the the nihilism piece and and the bit about the emptiness and the meaninglessness of it all you know someone like lacan and you know a lot of people who follow his school of thought and similar schools of thought you know would say that the desire that we have for anything more, no matter what it is, whether it's afterlife or a relationship or a career or whatever, um, that is all produced from the nothingness, from the lack, and that it's just an illusionary desire. And it'll always be like a dog kind of chasing its tail. It will always be there because the lack will always be there. We will always have desire to sort of match the lack. Um, but as I mentioned earlier, you know, Gilles Deleuze actually says, no, um, our imagination stand alone. You know, it doesn't need the lack of nothingness. It is creative production. It is a creative force all on its own. And he calls this desiring production. And this is how we make meaning and how we rise above the fact that empirically speaking, objectively speaking, yeah, there may be that empty abyss of life out there. Um, but when we talk into the abyss, it doesn't echo back to us. Like it is deep and cavernous and we get to create out of it. 
And I just think that when you make that little bit of shift in mindset, it really makes a difference. You know, because a lot of people will say like, what's the point to any of, you know, once once the God in the sky sort of runs out of steam, as I used that phrase earlier, you know, a lot of people are like, what is the point then? Like, is there any meaning to life? Like once you remove that, you know, underlying moral God, you know, that structure that holds everything together or that you believed held everything together, you know, what, what left is there? Is there just chaos? Is there just, you know, a maelstrom of, you know, mayhem? Like what, you know, what is it? But we actually get to have a real say in that. And we get to be those desiring production machines, in a sense. We get to be that creative force um, that makes meaning in our lives and in the lives of those around us. And I find a lot of hope in that. So, you know, when you talk about consciousness after death and all of that, I would love that. I would love that to be true. I love life and I love consciousness and (laughs) I would love to keep it going. I would love to haunt people. I would love to kind of roam the earth and see what's happening and, you know, be around for hundreds of years as a, as sort of a spirit hanging out with my spirit friends, but at the same time, or not, but maybe, and, and, you know, I, I don't presume to know. And I, as much as I would love to be pleasantly surprised, I am really um, apprehensive of putting any sort of hope in anything post this life. That doesn't mean you can't, and that doesn't mean other people can't. This is totally a personal thing. Yeah. Um, you know, that's, that's sort of where I'm at in that conversation. So I, I wanted to give people hope in the face of death, in the face of grief, because I think that funerals look a lot different when you are, when you've moved on from a traditional Christian understanding of things, you know, I think that holidays like Christmas and Easter and Palm Sunday look a lot different when you've moved on. That doesn't mean, and a lot of people are like, well, what do we do with these holidays now? Well, actually there's a way to engage them really well. And I talk about that in several chapters of the book. Um, cause I think these things are important. We just, we don't want to throw them away simply because we don't engage them the way we used to. We know that they, they're still meaningful for us. We know that there is a story there that we want to be a part of. We just don't know how. We don't know how to uncover it. We don't know how to interrogate it. We don't know how to ask it new questions. And, you know, this collection of essays is, is all about that. I talk a lot about various scripture passages that are very popular scripture passages, um, but I engage those differently. I talk about very basic things like, happiness and love and falling in love. And, you know, I have other essays even outside of this one on death and grief on meaning of life questions. It's just because post-Christianity is really a reorientation. It's about changing the directionality, um, yeah. you know, of, of how we relate to the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It is. So, yeah. It's like taking off a pair of glasses and putting on a different pair. Like, yeah, you view the world completely differently. You know, the lens you see everything is is different. Um, absolutely, yeah. And I think it's right. I think there there is that balance, like with death. Like you, like yes, you can hope for something after death, and but don't like don't live there. Yeah. Like yeah. the one of the lessons from grief and death should be be fully present in your life now. And make the most of your life now and treasure every relationship and every moment um, now because you don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. Right. But at the same time, you can also hold that and hold the, I think something might happen after death. Right. Um, And hold those kind of, not intention, but just hold those together. Yeah. And there's no no gatekeeping. 
right? There's no gate. When you talk about consciousness, that doesn't include gatekeeping. That doesn't include some people in and some people out. Do you know what I mean? And that, that changes the game in and of itself, really. You know, because people are, people are really scared. So you'll, people will find if they read through the book, you know, these are all Patreon pieces. Um, and part, part of my Patreon offering is I also do theological coaching. So people who are really struggling with, theologies that they used to believe about God or doctrine, you know, ideological stuff that they want to move on from, but they don't know how to think through. I I do some of that work. And, you know, some of these essays float out of some of those conversations that I had, you know, the, the one on Trinity, you know, the one on hell, the one on rapture, these, these float out of um, conversations that I had in my, my theological coaching sessions. And, Part of it is that people are really afraid to let go. People are really scared. Like the my the second essay in this collection here um, is on hell, and I think I, I call it um, the myth, the legend, the nightmare. <laughs> and people are people know they don't believe in you know a red guy with pitchfork and horns in a Dante's Inferno like situation, but they're afraid to totally move on from it you know, should the God they no longer believe in send them to the hell that they no longer believe in and they need help working it out. And I think that's the same with death. I think it's the same with a lot of this stuff where we want to kind of, we're afraid to dip our toe in, in the water of, of what's new. And so the, this actually, um, I talk a lot about the phrase new thoughts in this collection, especially in the, in the introduction. And that's because that's what this Patreon tier was called new thoughts. My theological, coaching tier is called new conversations, but this one is called new thoughts because we're all thinking new thoughts together each week as a community. We're, we're journeying together. And so again, what I wanted to offer in this volume is, you know, helping people reimagine what they're thinking around some of this stuff could actually do and can actually take them. And there's a lot of hope in that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It's really, really good. And I highly recommend it to everybody. Um, Thank you. It is available now as well. Yep. In all that, I take it to in all the places you can get books, like Amazon and all those other places. Yep. This one is actually just doing on Amazon this this time. My Amazon sales were so high on my last book that <laughs> we decided to just uh, distribute through through Amazon exclusively and the publisher is choir if people are interested um, in that you could probably also get on the choir website but yeah it's going to be Amazon and yeah would love for you to go get the book find me on social media because I'd love to hear your thoughts on on what you think about some of this stuff I'm usually pretty good about responding to my DMs so always love hearing from people who are reading my stuff yeah and what are your, what are your social media media handles yeah, well, actually, if people just head to my website, um, that can direct them to everything I'm doing. Facebook, Instagram, you can sign up for my email list there. It's mariafrancescafrench.com. Fantastic. I highly recommend doing that and following Maria on, uh, on Instagram, especially because um, she's very active there. I do a lot on Instagram. Yeah, I do some on Facebook, but I do. I live my whole life on Instagram. So if you want more than just the theological stuff. If you want my travels and my cocktails and my dog, <laughs> it's gonna, uh, uh, that and all the theological stuff will be on Instagram. Fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, thank you, Maria, for coming on. And uh, I'm sure we'll have you back again sometime. Um, and um, thanks for listening, everybody. 
Yeah, thank you.